Welcome to the 417th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Alice Henderson, author of the novel A Solitude of Wolverines. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Alice Henderson, author of the novel A Solitude of Wolverines. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeff. I'm really excited to be here. Great. Well, if someone hasn't heard about your novel, A Solitude of Wolverines, yet, how would you describe the novel? Well, A Solitude of Wolverines is the first novel in a new thriller series about a wildlife biologist who encounters dangerous situations while studying endangered species out in the field. In the first novel, she gets a job searching for wolverines on a wildlife sanctuary in remote northwestern Montana. It's the site of a former ski resort, but now a land trust has bought the property and put a conservation easement on it. Long ago, wolverines had been seen in this area, but since the ski resort opened, they haven't been seen in decades. So the land trust wants to know if wolverines are moving back into the area. But once out in the field, Alex sets up remote cameras to see if she can capture images of these elusive creatures. But when she reviews the footage, she's startled to see images of a severely injured man wandering on the preserve. When she sets out to help him, she realizes too late that she's stumbled on a secret that someone will kill to protect. So when I originally had this idea for the series, I wanted to name each book with the group name of an animal and then the animal and have each book be about a different endangered species, like a parliament of owls or a pot of whales. But when I chose wolverines and started working on the book, I realized wolverines don't actually have a group name. They're so solitary. So a character in the book asks Alex, what the group name is. And when she says they don't have one, she says, you should just make one up then. So Alex decides upon a solitude of Wolverines. (laughs) So, (laughs) so besides that idea that you just mentioned, do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write a solitude of Wolverines? I do. So I am myself a wildlife researcher 
and also a writer. And I never brought the two worlds together until now I've written, I love thrillers. That's my favorite thing to read. And, but my work didn't really revolve around wildlife themes, although some of them had a lot of wildlife scenes in them. And one day I was out in the field, actually in Montana, recording wolves and setting up my recording equipment and waiting for a dark to happen. And I thought, why don't I bring these two together? And it was in remote Montana. And I thought, what a cool setting for a thriller. I mean, it was so isolated and beautiful. And I feel so passionate about helping wildlife. And I thought I should bring every skill that I have toward this goal of helping them. So then I just had to decide, okay, so it's going to be a thriller because I love reading those. And I just had to pick a species for the first book. And I wanted to pick one that maybe people didn't know a lot about that were really in jeopardy and really needed some more attention and decided upon wolverines because there's only like less than 300 left in the lower 48 and they have no protection under the Endangered Species Act. Or, so that's how I decided to bring the two worlds I love of writing and wildlife work together to try to do this combo, entertain readers, but also maybe give some insight into some of these species that are struggling. What are your memories of the first fiction that you wrote? <laughs> I, <laughs> My father had given me this old 1920s Underwood manual typewriter, and I decided it was the kind of thing hard-will detective fiction should be written on. I was only six, and I remember trying to type on it, and my fingers would get stuck between the keys. And I had loved hardball detective fiction, and so <laughs> I created this character. How detectives back then, like, they had these cool names, and they were really smooth, and they talked in these similes, <laughs> and Sam Spade. And I decided my character should be extremely awkward. So... <laughs> <laughs> My six-year-old self thought it would be hilarious if he was named Maynard A. Flitchenheimer III, P.I. And he talked to, you know how in hardball detective fiction, they'll say something like, he hit me and I went down like an express elevator. Flitchenheimer would make similes that made no sense at all. Like, he hit me and I went down like an octopus with all the wrong shoes. So... <laughs> I still actually write about Flitchenheimer. I've kept his casebook going. Even today, if I'm feeling frustrated about what I'm writing, I'll sit down at this same manual typewriter and crank out a Maynard A. Flitchenheimer, the third PI story. You have to get this published sometime. <laughs> I've thought about it. I think they're so ridiculous. I don't know. Right. They're, they're so much fun to write. And so what was your writing journey that led you from writing about this PI when you were six years old on the manual typewriter to having your first novel published? That was a tough journey. My dad actually, when I was little like that, submitted the Cricket magazine and things like that for me, but no luck. And then I got my undergrad. I've always been split down the middle between science and the arts. So my undergrad is partly in writing partly in the sciences, earth sciences, and things like field zoology, biogeography. So I was submitting all through being an undergrad. And then I went on to graduate school and submitted my fiction all through that as well, <laughs> with no luck. And then... And what were you writing? I was writing... Well, I love horror. And so I was writing mainly horror. It was always genre work. I, I like 
creature horror specifically. So it was monsters, Mm -hmm. a lot of short fiction. And then I tried some young adult that I had submitted also creature supernatural fiction. And then I went, I moved to San Francisco when I got a job with George Lucas with his video game company. And I started as soon as I had those Star Wars credits, I tell you, things got a lot easier. So then I ended up doing a pitch for a Buffy the Vampire Slayer novel and with Simon and & Schuster, and they accepted it. So that was my first published novel was the Buffy the Vampire Slayer novel. And I did two with them, which were so much fun. I loved it. And, and then after that was my first novel was published with Penguin. And that was a horror novel called Voracious. And it was set in Glacier National Park. So again, my love for Montana and wildlife is in that book as well. And so can you tell us a little bit about the LucasArts job? How did that come about? You know how they say it's who a friend of mine from my undergraduate writing program actually had moved to San Francisco. And through him, I had met several people that worked for LucasArts. So when I applied, that helped to get in. And I was fresh off getting my master's degree. and got the job there. And it was a really cool company just to be around so many creative people. And, but it was exceedingly long hours, like 80 hours minimum, usually per week. And so I was just, I stopped driving into work just so I would ride on the bus and be able to work on my novels on the bus and during my lunch hour. And so somehow I managed to keep writing during that time. And I was actually writing Voracious, the book that was eventually published by Penguin during that time. And so while you were working at LucasArts, you wrote material for several Star Wars video games. How does writing for video games compare to writing novels? Is there any overlap? I think there there is some, depending on what you're writing. I had done some fleshing out of characters, fleshing out of characters, but mainly it was a lot of technical writing, like things like the guide to the game or strategy guides for the games and things like that. So it wasn't a lot of overlap, but one thing that definitely really taught me was tight deadlines. So some of these, even these media tie-in novels like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I did one for the TV show Supernatural, have extremely tight deadlines. So I think that was really good practice to get me into having to stay up all night for weeks at a time to get this stuff turned in. So you just mentioned that when you were working at this job, you rode the bus just so that you could work on your novels and have time given that the hours were tough, 80 hours a week. I'm just curious, what do you ever think about where that drive comes from for you to prioritize your life in a way, drive, taking the bus so that you could continue to work on your own writing? I often wonder, it. sometimes it feels like instead of choosing to be a writer, writing chooses people. Like ever since I was little, I've just felt this drive to write. And even when I've been frustrated and all those years of submitting without getting published, and wanting to quit. Some days I'd say, I'm quitting. I've had it. And, and I would want to take all my writing and put it out in the recycling bin. And then that same night, I'd be writing behind my own back. <laughs> so it was just, I almost feel like I didn't have a choice, really. I just somehow had this thing inside me that made me go on no matter what and persevere. So what was the writing process for you when you were working on A Solitude of Wolverines? Did you write 
the novel kind of organically, just seeing where the the story took you, or do you write from a detailed plot outline? I am definitely an outliner. I wasn't always, but again, with these really tight deadlines, I found that it's so useful to have that. So I'll plot extensively, and then I make a spreadsheet of every scene and who's in the scene and a brief description of what happens in the scene. It's not outlining it to death, which I've done that in the past, and I think that's a mistake because then the excitement of the story is sort of taken away from you. But it's enough that when I get up in the morning, I say, okay, what do I need to write today? It's easy to look at the spreadsheet and say, okay, I'm on scene 42 and this happens, and then I can plunge right into it. And it also helps with writing thrillers because you want to plant all these little seeds of suspense throughout the book. And if you get far into a book and think, oh, shoot, I should have. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Drop this hint before, now I have to rework this scene. Outlining for me allows me to avoid that kind of stumble later on in the book where I'm going to have to do considerable rewrites. So I definitely rely strongly on that. And have you always written that way, or is this something that you've developed over time, a system that works for you? I've definitely developed it over time. I used to be more of a let's see what happens, and I felt like I was more of a on a journey with my character, more of their chronicler. Let's see where this what this person decides to do today and what will happen. And I think with just like I say, these tight deadlines, I couldn't do that anymore. I really had to know exactly what was where I was going with the plot. I do love both. And in fact, my Flitchenheimer detective stories, I never know what's going to happen with those. And that might be why I love to write them. I just, he sits down in his office, a client walks in. I never know what the client's going to ask him to do. And it's just totally by the seat of my pants. So I do love that style of writing. I I know that you also participated in Launchpad, a NASA-funded writing workshop. What was that experience like? That was one of the best weeks of my life. It was so great. So 12 writers were chosen the year I went. And it's aimed at bringing accurate science to fiction. So it was a week. They put us up at the University of Montana, or sorry, Wyoming. So we were in the dorms. It was during the summer, so there were no students there. And during the day, we listened to lectures about astronomy and what really happens if you're ejected out of an airlock in space. And we learned how to calculate escape velocity and slingshot maneuvers. And it was great. And then at night, we looked through telescopes and had these amazing conversations during dinner. We talked about movies we love, but that maybe had gotten the science a little wrong. And it was just a fascinating week of just great conversations. And we learned so much. It was a great camaraderie as well. That's great. What writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I would say the key thing is persistence and perseverance. Writing is really hard. And I think persistence is the most important quality you can have as a writer. And 
in the early days, keep at that first draft. It's some writers just agonize over getting it perfect the first time, but that can really make you stall out. And instead, just keep writing it, keep at it. I, I think it was James Thurber who said, don't get it right, get it written. So just power through that draft and know that in later drafts, that's when you can go through and adjust everything to make it exactly how you like it. And when it's time to submit, it's really easy to get down when you receive rejections. And I think it's okay to wallow for an afternoon, but then pick yourself up and send that out. Just keep sending out the queries and manuscripts and don't dwell on the rejections. Instead, imagine what it's going to be like when you tell your family and friends that you got a book deal and imagine how fun the signings will be and meeting your readers and going out for celebratory dinners with your friends. And I'd say the other piece of advice I have is conferences. If I had known this earlier on, when I was submitting all those years and getting rejections, I had never been to a conference. So I didn't actually know any other writers or editors or agents in person. So going to conferences and meeting these people in person is just invaluable. And that way, instead of submitting to the slush pile, you are, if you pitch to an editor at a conference and you send them your manuscript, it's going to go straight onto their desk. So that conferences is key, I think, too. And pre-pandemic, obviously, were there conferences that you really enjoyed or that you would recommend? I would say... Going to a genre-specific conference is the way to go. Like I went to a few at first that were just general, every genre, and it just wasn't, it's hard to meet the right kind of agents and editors. There weren't that many there and hardly any were there for my genre. So if you're a thriller writer or a mystery writer, Left Coast Crime is a great one. Thriller Fest, which is rather expensive because it's in New York City, but it's also a good one. VoucherCon. And then... If you're a fantasy or horror writer, World Fantasy Convention is a very professional, wonderful. And you have to also look at if it's a conference more for fans. Like if you're an established writer and you want to connect better with your readers, BoucherCon is really good for that. But if you're in the pitching stage, Thriller Fest would be a better choice. So some are just mainly devoted toward the craft of writing and networking and meeting people. And some are more for your fans. So are you working on another novel now? I am. I sent my second book in this series, the Alex Carter Thriller series, to my editor earlier this summer. And that one is about polar bears. And it's set in the Canadian Arctic. So that's the one I'm working on right now. That's great. So what fiction or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I read a lot. Uh, let's see. I'm really getting into this writer, Helen McCloy. Are you familiar with her? I'm not. No. She she was writing mysteries. I think her first novel was published in 1939, and her last one maybe in 1980. And she just wrote these amazingly clever mysteries, just very suspenseful. A lot of them have great action in them. So I've really been into her. I just read Old Bones by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child which is their first book about Nora Kelly, the anthropologist. So that was a really great one that was set in Tahoe, the Donner, where the Donner Party was. And right now I'm reading a book by one of my favorite authors, Robert McCammon. He writes this mystery series set in colonial America, 
about a character, Matthew Corbett, if you've read those. I actually have. I love Robert McCammon. Oh, great. Me too. I love his work. Have you read The Listener? I have not. I read the first two Matthew Corbett books and I haven't read the other ones yet, but I love McCammon. I've read almost everything. The Listener is a standalone book that he, it's one of his more recent ones. I think it came out two years ago. It's amazing, Jeff. He's such a great writer. That's great. That's great. Yeah, you don't run across too many people. In fact, I just earlier this year, I listened to Swan Song on audiobook with my 16 year old. He loved it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Isn't that book amazing? Oh, my. Yeah, yeah. McCammon's great. I, I love McCammon. Me too. I think Boy's Life, that's my favorite book I've ever read. Yeah. Yeah. Boy's Life is amazing. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? You can go to alicehenderson.com and that's got all my novels and some advanced praise for A Solitude of Wolverines. And it's also where I post my newsletter every month, which has not just publishing news, but wildlife news and some green tips and interesting wildlife facts and sort of other things I've been up to. I just built a radio telescope. And uh, that's, I guess, the nonfiction I've been reading a lot is about radio astronomy. Yeah. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Alice Henderson, author of the novel A Solitude of Wolverines. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Alice, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff, for having me. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from A Solitude of Wolverines by Alice Henderson. Performed by Eva Kaminsky. Available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The Wetlands dedication ceremony was a resounding success until the gunman showed up. Alex Carter had felt happy, blinking in the bright sunlight, gazing out over the green, marshy area. The gold and scarlet of fall touched a handful of trees, where the blue sky reflected in patches of visible water. A great blue heron stood vigil, gazing down for a glimpse of fish. It was sunny now, but huge cumulus clouds were building on the horizon, and she knew that a thunderstorm would descend over the city before the day was out. Boston Councilman Mike Stevens stood on a temporary stage, giving a speech to a gathering of outdoor enthusiasts who happily sampled the provided wine and cheese. From one corner of the stage, a perfectly quaffed TV reporter in a spotless white suit signaled to her cameraman to get sound bites. Her styled blonde hair glowed around her pink face. Later, Alex had to do an interview with the woman, and nervousness churned in her stomach. Alex looked down at her own outfit, worn jeans, a black thermal top under a black fleece jacket, hiking boots covered in mud. Her long brown hair was pulled back in a quick ponytail. Alex couldn't remember if she'd brushed it that morning, and suspected she hadn't. While Alex's best friend, Zoe, always insisted that eyeliner made Alex's blue eyes pop, Alex had also neglected to apply any today. Ditto for any tinted moisturizer on her face, which she suspected was looking particularly pale and nervous. Christine Mendoza, the founder of Save Our Wetlands Now, approached Alex, grinning as she tucked her wind-tossed hair behind her ear. She touched Alex's elbow affectionately and whispered, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Last year, Christine had approached Alex, 
asking if she'd do a pro bono environmental impact assessment for the area. A development company had announced plans to build luxury condominiums and retail spaces on the spot, which would displace more than a hundred species of birds. For the last year, Alex had lived in downtown Boston, a far cry from the wild places her heart longed for. Helping to save a small corner of surviving wilderness was a delight. After her report was submitted, the green-leaning community spoke its mind, attending town hall meetings and sending in petitions. In the end, the city designated the habitat a protected space, and the development company withdrew its proposal. And today was the big day of celebration. Now she and Christine looked toward the mic, where Stevens was currently pontificating on civic responsibility, droning on about how providing open spaces for the public's well-being was of utmost importance. Stevens had actually been one of the driving forces behind the condo project, after getting a hefty kickback from the development company. Now he desperately tried to save face, pretending as if he'd been supportive of the wetlands protection from the start. Can you believe this, Joker? Christine said quietly to Alex, nodding toward the councilman. He fought us all the way, even sent me hate mail. Now he's pretending like the whole plan to save the wetlands was his idea. She shook her head. Sheesh, I know who I'm not voting for next election. Alex watched the man's perma-grin. I wonder if he had to give back all that money. Christine crossed her arms, her wavy brown hair framing her tawny face as she squinted into the bright sun. He was pretty mad when the development fell through. A few more people had been upset too, including the construction company who won the contract for the condos. But now this beautiful place would be protected, providing sanctuary for wildlife and a place of reflection for residents. It wasn't often that environmental issues swung this way, and Alex's heart swelled. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.